Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. By now, I am certain that you have heard of the recent decision by the WTC to alter the swim start of the Ironman World Championships in Kailua, Kona this coming October. It should come as no surprise that there have been about as many opinions on this change as there are swimmers in the warm waters of Kailua Bay each October, but I hope you don't mind if I take a few moments to add my own. For those of my listeners who may be a little less versed in the history of the Hawaii Ironman, this race began 41 years ago and grew pretty rapidly into the event that it is today. While the Ironman brand has grown worldwide and expanded to dozens of qualifying races, the number of athletes that can compete safely at the World Championships has always had a ceiling based on the number of bikes that can fit onto the Kailua Pier and to a lesser extent can safely be managed on the narrow swim course in the bay. Initially, the Hawaii Ironman was a mass start. The cannon went off and everyone started their day together, but as the event grew and the gap between top age groupers and pros became smaller, the start was modified. First, there was a separate start for the pros, and then, more recently, the men and women were started at different times as well. While this helped with congestion on the swim and made it somewhat safer, there were still problems in the water and more on the bike course. Because the Hawaii Ironman truly is a world championship race, the vast majority of competitors have similar abilities in the three disciplines. And consequently, amongst the 1,100 or so men starting the swim, some two-thirds tend to swim in a fairly narrow time range of about an hour to an hour and ten minutes. And that translated to like 700 guys starting the bike within a ten-minute time period. And the result was the pictures that you frequently see when you Google Hawaii Ironman bike course. Not exactly a draft-free experience. As the years went by, more and more people complained about this race experience, and to their credit, the WTC listened and decided to do something about it. At the risk of angering the purists who feel that the mass start is integral to the Ironman experience, the WTC felt that the integrity of the race, especially on the bike, was more important and that a modification was needed. They could have chosen a self-seated rolling start similar to what is used in most races these days, but instead went to a modified age group wave start, and I, for one, am pretty happy with this decision. I definitely understand the complaints about losing the mass start, but having participated in it once, I could tell you that once was more than enough, thank you very much. I've been in four Ironman mass starts, and frankly, they all kind of sucked, but the Kona experience was by far the worst. The behavior of other competitors, as well as the complete inability to escape the crowds, made it one of the worst swim experiences that I have ever had, and should I be fortunate enough to qualify for another world championship in the future, I will not be sad to not have to experience it again. Since competitors will be starting with all of the other members of their age group, there will be no mystery as to where you are in the race when you pass or are passed by someone else in your age group on the bike or run. This is one of the frustrating things about rolling starts, but even then on balance, I prefer those to mass starts. As to whether or not the modified start will have an impact to drafting or packs on the bike, I can't really sort of, you know, say, but it certainly can't make it worse. And as I have said for quite some time, some of that has to fall on us, the competitors. At the end of the day, each of us makes a decision about drafting or riding in a pack. If enough of us decide to ride cleanly, then the drafting and packs will simply disappear. The modification of the start can only make this more likely to happen. On the show today... Craig Smith is the owner and lead physiotherapist at the Smith Performance Center in Tucson, Arizona. He and another therapist, Nate Corsi, joined me to talk about movement analysis, strength and muscle inhibition in the workplace, as well as a novel approach to dealing with exercise-induced muscle cramps. The triathlete Routard 
finally gets to the volunteer state to discuss and review the Ironman and 70.3 races in Chattanooga, Tennessee. These races are popular for a reason. My guest and I aim to give you the lowdown on the city, the courses, and all that you need to know if you are signed up for or are considering signing up for one of these events. First up, though, you probably don't give a lot of thought to sleep as a training aid, but maybe you should. The research on the effects of a lack of sleep on performance, injury, and illness is pretty interesting and is the subject of this episode's listener question, and that's coming up right now. Now, this first segment might strike you as a bit of a yawner, but trust me when I say that it is anything but, and that far from being a somnambulist in approaching this subject matter, I'm taking it very seriously. If you haven't guessed yet, the subject of this episode's listener question is sleep. Specifically, how much do we as athletes need, and how does sleep, or lack thereof, affect performance? An amazing fact about sleep is not that we as humans will spend almost a third of our lives doing it, but rather that despite this, doctors and researchers to this day have absolutely no idea whatsoever why we do it. It's well understood that sleep is critical to our existence. Going without sleep leads to psychosis in a matter of days, and death in lab animals in a couple of weeks. But the actual function of sleep remains a complete mystery. We are incredibly vulnerable when we sleep, so whatever sleep actually does, it must clearly be worth it for the brain to just shut off like that and leave us so completely exposed. There are a few theories that have been developed out there as to why we need sleep, but none of them are proven or without their own problems. All of the theories, however, are rooted in the brain, demonstrating the central relationship that sleep has with this organ. One posits that sleep allows for a period of restoration of energy stores in brain cells, while another hypothesizes that this period allows for the clearance of toxins that build up during the time we're awake. A final theory, and one that currently has the most support, is that sleep allows for the brain to build and strengthen connections between neural networks, essentially hardwiring the things that we learned during the period that we were awake during the day. Whatever the actual reason for sleep, what we do know is that the amount of sleep that we get as well as the quality of sleep are both vitally important. The amount of sleep that we actually need for optimal health actually varies throughout our lives. As adults, we generally need between 7 and 9 hours a night, while for adolescents this number is higher, on the order of between 8 and 10. Though with my own 13-year-old in my current observations, it seems more like that number could be closer to 16, but that might just be my N of 1. But I digress. At any rate, there are other factors that can affect how much sleep we need on a given night, including illness, psychologic or physiologic stressors, and sleep debt. Sleep research has also shown that it isn't just the duration of sleep, but also the quality of that sleep that's incredibly important, specifically how deeply we sleep and whether or not that sleep is uninterrupted. Now, exercise has a two-way relationship with sleep. That is to say, we know that people who exercise tend to sleep better than those who don't, and also people who sleep well tend to perform better at exercise than those who don't. This has been shown repeatedly in all kinds of sports and for both individual and team activities. Despite this, high-performing athletes frequently do not get enough sleep for a variety of reasons. First of all, training itself can have negative impacts on sleep duration and quality. When training volume and intensity is highest, it can negatively impact athletes' ability to sleep and to get good quality sleep. Sleep in athletes can also be affected by competitions. 
not only because of the increased physiologic stresses, but also because of the consequences of long-distance travel and crossing time zones, associated mood disturbances, and competition-associated stress and anxiety. Precisely how sleep deprivation or restriction negatively impacts athletic performance isn't completely understood, but a few mechanisms have been identified that likely play a role. With respect to endurance athletes, like triathletes, the time to exhaustion and the time to perceived maximal effort is much shorter in athletes who have slept less than for those who have slept adequately. One potential rationale for this is depleted levels of pre-exercise glycogen in the sleep-deprived athletes. This has led some researchers to postulate that sleep is an important component to the rebuilding of muscle glycogen stores in athletes, and that when there is inadequate sleep, these stores are not replenished, leading to earlier fatigue. Cognitive abilities are also impacted by even modest amounts of sleep restriction, and while this has been shown to have much more important effects in those sports where accuracy and precision are important to the outcome, you can understand how this could have an impact to the triathlete trying to navigate the swim course or deal with sudden and anticipated issues while on the bike. Probably the most important way that lack of sleep impacts athletes, though, is through its effects on injury and illness. There's plentiful evidence now, albeit almost entirely observational and not truly experimental, to link decreased sleep with a higher risk of injury. One study suggested that amongst middle school athletes who slept less than 8 hours a night, the risk for injury was as much as 70% or two-thirds higher. The greatest risk for injury seems to occur when training load increases and sleep duration decreases at the same time, as is often seen in competitive travel and training camps. The underlying mechanism for the relationship between sleep loss and injury remains unclear, but may be related to the impairments in reaction time and cognitive function that I referenced earlier that could predispose to acute injury. On the other hand, impaired sleep can also contribute to higher levels of fatigue that could similarly contribute to injury risk in athletes. With respect to illness, decreased sleep has been shown to suppress the immune system and increases susceptibility to upper respiratory infections in particular. So what can athletes do to try and improve the amount and quality of sleep that they get in order to improve their performance and decrease the likelihood of injury and illness? Well, proper sleep hygiene is an important initial step to take, including modifying the sleep environment and as much as possible adhering to a sleeping schedule. Sleeping environments should be comfortable and cool, dark and quiet, and without electronic devices, specifically iPhones or other electronic pads or computers or other distractions. To the extent that training, competition, work, and family schedules can allow, maintaining a regular bedtime hour and building in a 30- to 60-minute relaxation period in advance of that can go a long way to facilitating falling asleep. The intake of caffeine or other stimulants, such as medication for attention deficit disorder, should be limited to the morning hours, and alcohol and nicotine should be avoided due to their disruptive effects on sleep. Over-the-counter sedating medications such as antihistamines and melatonin are widely used but have never been shown to benefit sleep or subsequent performance in athletes. Sedating medications such as benzodiazepines like Valium or Ativan should really be avoided given their addictive potential without any proven performance benefit. When possible, travel for competition should be limited to two or three time zones and travel should allow for a day in the destination before competition per time zone crossed in order to adjust properly. Adjusting your training, sleep, and wake times before departure to mimic the destination time zone can help in the adjustment and potentially shorten the adjustment time after arrival. 
Now, my good friend Kelly is going to be a little bit disheartened, actually probably more than just a little bit disheartened, to hear that the role of daytime naps on performance is very much unclear. One thing that is well known is that naps can have a negative impact on nighttime sleep quality and duration. In order to avoid any possible disruption of nighttime sleep patterns, naps should be short, no more than 30 minutes, and taken early in the day. So as you can see, despite the fact that no one knows exactly why we sleep, we do know that it is of vital importance to athletic performance and likely to mitigate the risk of injury and illness. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Please send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. On this episode of the podcast, I am thrilled to welcome as my guest two members of the treatment team at the Smith Performance Center in Tucson, Arizona. Dr. Craig Smith is the owner and director of the center. He's a physical therapist, strength coach, researcher, and adjunct faculty at the Northern Arizona University. Craig earned his clinical doctorate in physical therapy at Northern Arizona University, where he graduated with distinction and was awarded the Distinguished Graduate for the Department of Physical Therapy and Athletic Training. During his sophomore year in college, a series of ankle sprains while playing football led to a career-ending injury. It was the start of a journey to help others in a similar situation through physical therapy, strength training, and research. He became deeply interested in research, making his first contribution by presenting at the National Conference of Undergraduate Research as a senior in college. He continued to pursue information on how rehabilitation melded with return to normal daily activities and movement. Clinically, Dr. Smith is interested in diagnosis, movement impairments, dysfunctional gait, and running analysis, along with long-term athletic development with a focus on injury risk reduction and screening. Nate Corsi received a master's in exercise science with a specific interest in endurance training and biomechanics at Texas State University in 2017. Before moving to Texas, Nate completed a bachelor's degree at Northern Arizona University in 2014 in exercise science with minors in health and wellness and chemistry. He then worked in physical therapy, where he found his passion for implementing specific exercise to improve both health and performance. Craig, Nate, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah. I'm really interested in uh, this notion of movement analysis and strength and how it is that you use that to help athletes improve performance. Well, um, I think we, we work in the opposite direction. We look to see where an athlete is strong or where they're weak at, and then we look at how they're moving. Uh, so we get an idea of uh, where they're weak usually, and then if we can uh, make some adjustments, it's kind of clear like, oh, yeah, we need to work on this area. Um, uh, so like, for example, if we see that athlete, uh, has a pelvic drop when they're running, um, before we've done a running analysis, like even putting them on a treadmill, we'll do strength testing and see their abductor strength, their glute strength. And then, uh, kind of tells a story of what we're seeing on the treadmill. Like, oh yeah, that's a really clear thing. We need to work on that. And does that translate to cycling and swimming as well? Absolutely. Yeah, I think when we talk about movement analysis, and I know that's the one that's the most interesting, you know, uh, you know, having somebody look at your gait and, and saying, okay, you're running in this way and we can change this to make you run better. Our actual kind of the way that we actually look at it, we have a hierarchy of, of what we attack first. So most often people show up and they're in pain. And when it's they're in pain, that's that's either what's one of the people, one of the physical therapists on the team typically will will uh, attack that problem. And so we look at pain, and then after that, after we clear symptoms with pain, we drop into strength, motor control, any level of sensory, 
impairment or sensory compromise, like unable to single leg balance, for example, then to anatomy and finally motor control. So when somebody says like a movement analysis, a movement analysis is just a component of the entire pitch, clinical picture. <clears throat> so anybody that operates with us or comes to see us, the movement analysis is just a component of the overall picture of whatever that person is doing training wise, whatever coach they're working with, whatever their job is, how busy they are at home. Then we throw that on top of, are they currently having pain? And after we get through all that stuff, then we can make a, a really good, reasonable analysis of their movement. But the way we look at it, you can't understand why somebody's moving the way they're moving if you just look at the movement. So like we use that for gait all the time. So if somebody goes for a run and we see that they have like a crossover gait pattern or they hit with the heel strike or one of the terms that Nate and I always use, a, a, a pig leg gait pattern. So they're running like a pirate, right? Arr. So. Yeah, you know, so the, the the biggest thing on that is we can't say is that quad weakness. We can't say if that's because they are overstriding. We can't say that's because of a heel strike. We have to understand the, the root reason that they're moving, and you can't look at that. just You can't just say this is why you're moving because of what we see. You have to do all the, the base work before to really dig into it. It's like somebody has a post-op ACL. Uh Almost always when they come to see us, even if they've had a great program, if they're having issues with they run with their run, there's either a quad weakness issue or they've just developed a pattern that uh, they run with their knee straight. And so those are all things we have to actually correct and cue up. Now, you mentioned a couple of things in there that I really want to follow up on. And the first one has to do with occupation. Uh, you know, unfortunately, most of us age groupers don't get to do this full time. We all have, you know, regular jobs. And I have heard frequently that, you know, desk jobs are notorious for leading to uh, glute weakness or flexor weakness. And I'm curious how you see that manifest in what you're talking about. Well, uh, I think if you're, if you're sitting at a desk working at a computer, uh, all the time. We see all sorts of issues. Uh, just like you mentioned, the, the glute weakness, or uh, I wouldn't necessarily say glute weakness. I would say lack of motor control of the glutes. Um, but it's that's what I see. But I don't know if you have something else there. But um, usually uh, what we see is just a lack of control, uh, lack of abdominal muscle control, lack of glute control, um, maybe a lack of shoulder control. Mm -hmm. And, and that's leading to all those injuries that are associated with being uh, tied to a desk. Because um, once they go out onto the, onto the field or start their run or start the bike ride or start to swim, uh, some of those muscles are not activated or ready to go. And I think a common issue that, that I see working with uh, a lot of runners over the age of 40 is that they forget that you need to do something before you start activity. Uh, to kind of wake yourself up, wake up the muscles. Uh, so uh, a lot of the issues that I deal with is uh, having a proper warm-up before you begin because um, most times I see people just tying up their shoes and starting to run after they worked a 10- or 12-hour day, and usually uh, you're not going to feel good uh, once you start like that. <laughs> Now, is there something that people can do uh, during the workday if they're stuck at their desk? Is there something they can do to try and, you know, mitigate the amount of, you know, lack of control that they're going to develop from sitting all day? Well, I, I think one of the one of the protocols that that Nate uses. So if we, if you say you come in here, you're not having any pain, um, but that's something that we know. Like in the in the testing, is that you're you're testing weak. 
when people test weak, that can be an absolute strength issue, right? Like it can be that they're not strong, but the other problem that can be happening is that the muscle itself is inhibited. So in a lot of cases, if you can run a triathlon, I mean, if you can do a sprint distance, even you're not weak. And I, I think a lot of times, I think that that, the precision of that term is actually pretty important because if you're not, you're not actually weak, you may attack it in the wrong way. And so the terms we like to use is that your muscle might be inhibited. And so we look at inhibition. If we have somebody go do a 10 mile run, we'll measure their, their strength, uh, their rate of strength decline over the, the entire run. And if we see that they have a fast rate of muscle strength decline, we think we're dealing with a, the normal. We think we're dealing with an inhibition issue. And so I think, I think more along the lines of what we run into is that people have an inhibition problem, not an absolute strength problem. And I think the sitting uh, for long periods of time, I mean, whether that's just an increase in back pain, lean to glute inhibition, you know. So yeah. Nate's, Nate's the one that carries those out. But, I mean, I, I would say that that's probably the most common problem that I see Nate deal with. Um, with our running programs. And is there something that people can do at work to try and, you know, on a day-to-day basis so that they, they don't have as much trouble? Just getting up and doing a couple movements throughout the day, just walking around sometimes, um, breaking up the sitting. Uh, sometimes we, we have our, our athletes that are doing a lot of training. We have to break up their training with some rest. Uh, so I think in the other direction, if you, are seated sedentary for a long period of time you have to combat that every once in a while just get up do a couple squats or go for a walk or something like that just get the muscles going because uh, if you're sitting eight hours ten hours uh things are just going to shut off and they're going to be lazy sure so we've talked a lot about running i'm curious about how you look at people uh swimming or cycling do you just get them on a spin bike do you actually get them in a pool and observe them yeah. So, um, yeah, we do a combo of stuff. So we, we do the bike. We also have my, my wife is also a physical therapist and she, uh, analyzes the swimming. So we'll bring it all together. But so I'm not a triathlete and, and I will never do a triathlon, but the thing that interests me, I know I'm not, I'm not going to, but it's, uh, <laughs> I, I'm actually, the reason that, got, that I got into working with triathletes and this is the area I do research in is, is how do, uh, how do the, the three disciplines interact with each other? So again, I think kind of to your question is people think that the cross training is actually injury protective. And I don't think it is. I don't think it reduces your injury risk at all. So it, I, I honestly, the way that a lot of the ways that we think of it is, or what interactions are you having between the three disciplines versus saying that you have something that you're doing wrong during the discipline. So like people will have an issue with their bike and they think they need to do a new bike fit. Well, maybe, but it also could be that, you know, you're having an interaction between the bike and then how it affects you during your run. And so it's, it's those training, those interactions and those, uh, those issues and how those interact with each other, I think is critical. I honestly think it's the biggest mistake that most triathletes make. So help me understand that. Let me, let, let me, let me dive into that a little more because what you said is true. Most people feel like the idea of doing triathlon, not so much protects them from injury, but at least if they have an injury that prohibits them from running they could at least still swim they can still bike but based on what you're saying if there's an interaction between say the bike and the run then if they get a running injury continuing to bike might actually prevent them from healing up that run injury so what are these kinds of interactions can you give me an example a concrete example oh yeah i mean so yeah the easiest one is just muscle cramping so exercise associated muscle cramping a lot of times uh 
when we're talking to people, they, they've, they've had muscle cramping for years. They talk about having it when they go to bed, you know, wakes them up at night. They have it every time they go to run. It feels like their calf is ripping in half. They'll have it when they, after they get done swimming. And so they'll give up running. It's typically the one that they come in and they tell us they can't run anymore because every time they do, they develop an Achilles tendinopathy or uh, they have cramping that they just can't handle. Well, understanding the interaction. So if you have somebody still swimming, you're, you're putting them into a flutter kick position where they're plantar flexed. That's going to increase the activation of your muscle spindle. It's going to decrease the activation of your Golgi tendon organ. And the Golgi tendon organ operates to inhibit the muscle. So that's like the most basic one is if you have somebody keep swimming, keep having new spins, and they're having issues with running, with calf cramping and Achilles tendinopathies, you're only going to drive the problem to become worse and worse and worse. And then taking time off with running, you're not actually helping it. Okay. Uh, now you mentioned the golden, the golden word cramping. So I really want to dive a little bit more into that. Uh, cramping, as you know, uh, the bane of existence for many, many people, myself included. Uh, I've done a ton of research on this. It seems to be, you know, no real one thing. It, uh, the most pervasive and I guess convincing research these days seems to be around, uh, 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 neuromuscular uh, miscommunication, shall we say, or misfiring. Um, but there's other people who still adhere to the electrolyte or temperature or you know fatigue. And uh, at this point, I'm starting to think it's probably a combination of things. But I do think the neuromuscular seems to be the you know main driver here. So, how do you, through physiotherapy, address these problems, especially the neuromuscular one, which seems to be the most difficult to overcome? Well, can I can I ask you what cramping you're having that you've dealt with? Sure. I, for me, it's hamstrings all the time. Okay. And when do you, when does it cramp? Uh, hot days, late in the run. Got it. Okay. So late in the run. So so do you? What type of uh, gait pattern do you have? Are you a heel striker, forefoot, midfoot? Uh, I mean, I, I yeah, I don't know. Probably, I mean, I'd like to think I'm a four. I'd like to think I'm a midfoot uh, forefoot, but uh, uh, when I look at finisher picks, or there may be some heel striking going on. Yeah, can you probably, tell? Probably late in the run, maybe heel strike. Yeah, you probably change your heel strike late in the run. That's that's what we typically see. Uh, do you know um, when during your gait cycle it starts to feel like it's cramping? Is it when your leg is swinging through, or is it when you hit the ground? Was, I, I don't really want this to be about me so much. <laughs> well, I, can, I think you can use it as a as a pretty easy way for us to talk sure. about like how you're thinking about it. I will. Uh, uh, it, it'll tend to be on hills, either up or down, up or down. Okay. And as soon as the quad goes, I will try to strength. I will try to straighten it out. Uh, sorry, as soon as the hamstring goes, I will straighten it out, and the quad will go. So, uh, and then I'm standing there immobilized because both the hamstring and the quad on the same leg are cramping. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like our, our immediate thought with that is I, we would typically push you right into it and then figure out what, when and how it's happening. So we would actually cause you to cramp like that. So I'm glad that you probably like, I'm glad I'm in Denver, not in Tucson. I don't want to experience that, but, uh, but that's so that's a perfect example. So you think about muscle cramping, exercise associated muscle cramping. The first thing is that it's a it's typically a muscle that crosses two joints, and it's typically uh, a local response. You're not having it systemically, so that's why we're not thinking electrolytes or dehydration. The best studies that I've seen have, have been done on this. 
by Schwellness have definitely said, have really given no evidence for either of those two being a, a component of it. And even your own example, the, the, that to me sounds like we would want to see which thing is getting overloaded. I'd also like to see what your hamstring strength is. And then I'd look at your synergistic muscles and see what they are. So like your glute max. And then we basically test it out and see what we could do at the point in time when you're going to have a cramp and also see what your muscle profile is. So what, how, what, a, what you can actually produce strength wise. But that's like a, that's a perfect example of you're, it's getting overloaded, but you've also changed probably the muscle spindle activation. You're not getting any level of Golgi 10 organ and, uh, inhibition response through that muscle. So it, and you're fatigued. So I definitely think fatigue is a component of it, but that's, uh, yeah, that's a perfect example of it's getting overloaded. Your synergistic muscles are probably not operating appropriately and, uh, your hamstring freaks out. And it sounds, it sounds as if the approach is not so much to make the cramping stop because it sounds like there really isn't a great way to do that, but instead it's to try and come up with ways to prevent the cramping from starting in the first place by helping strengthen the muscles in the area. So that the yeah. muscle being loaded is not being loaded as much. And this is really what Nate so this is what Nate does. So Nate basically finds your breaking point like that and, <laughs> and that's where he corrects that. I mean, so tell him about the, the inhibition protocol that you um, that you do with like the hamstring stuff. For example, we had we had a guy that uh, he would cramp up uh, about was that like five miles in five or miles six in. miles in. Mm-hmm. So we had him run and every two miles we checked his strength. And, uh, just checking to see like where it's decaying. So, uh, what we saw is, let's say for example, his hamstring was getting super weak, just decaying really quickly. And everything else was, uh, staying about the same or decaying at more of a normal rate. Uh, one of the other muscles would cramp because it's being worked too hard. So what we would do is, you know, uh, let's try this out. Let's do some hamstring exercise before, uh, so like a mile and a half in. Uh, stop and do this hamstring work. Uh, and let's repeat it. Uh, so every mile and a half for uh, 10 miles, stop and do this exercise. Uh, and let's just get through it. And so we, what we would see is just a decrease in their symptoms of the cramping. And then what we would do is we'd train it and say, okay, so now uh, next week let's try um, instead of five times during the run, let's do four times during the run, three times during the run so far and, and just cut down on the amount of times that we're doing that exercise because we're retraining the brain how to communicate to that muscle. Just keep that muscle on, keep it going. Uh, and then eventually they, they get off of it. But I still encourage a, a lengthy warm-up beforehand. <laughs> um, Usually but, I've had a swim and bike beforehand. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, have you found success with these, uh, these programs? Like do people actually like stop cramping? Yeah, uh, absolutely. We've yeah. seen a, a couple cases where it's been completely alleviated. Um, so, yeah, I, I would I would say it, I don't think that we have issues with cramping. Truthfully, I, I, honestly, the I, so I feel like physical therapy wise, where we have the issue is that they people miss out on having like an exercise physiologist like Nate who can take him, help him the rest of the way through the program. You know, so. I think a lot of times with physical therapy, we have to our you know our, our help with them ends, and then they return back to the the program they had before, and it it just all pops back up. But like the uh, the hamstring, when, you, when your hamstring is irritated, you have to inhibit it to a certain extent if it's if it's becoming overactive, and then you target that muscle right at the point of time that you have the issue. So I, I don't know the uh, 
the numbers, but yeah, we've, we've had a lot of people have success with, uh, hamstring and, and calf. Those are definitely yeah, by far the two most too. common. So it's for us, it's calf is the most common followed closely by hamstring. And then the last one's quad. That's really great stuff. Well, uh, Craig Smith and Nate Corsi both joined me today from the Smith Performance Center in Tucson, Arizona. Thank you uh, so much, Craig and Nate, for a really fascinating conversation. Yeah, thanks for your time. Thank you. And now it's time once again for the Triathlete Routard, that segment of the program when I'm joined by a guest to discuss and provide a kind of travel guide to one of the popular races on the WTC calendar. On this episode, I'm going to be talking about the 70.3 and Ironman races in Chattanooga, Tennessee, fondly referred to as I Am Chu. Joining me for this conversation is my friend, Bill Ludington. Bill is an accomplished triathlete at the 70.3 and Ironman distances and has been coaching for two years as Big Dog Tri. I'll provide a link to his website in the show notes. Last September, Bill finished third in his age group at I Am Chu and secured his first ever slot to the World Championships in Kailua, Kona this coming October. Bill has raced the full distance in Chattanooga, and I've done the half, so together we should have this covered. Welcome to the podcast, Bill. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So we always begin with a discussion about whether or not these races sign up, uh, whether or not you should sign up quickly, do these races sell out fast. I can speak to the half. I know that the half tends not to sell out all that quickly. I know there uh, were slots available even about six weeks out from the race this year. Um, What about the full? doesn't sell out um, quite as fast. The only thing that you want to be aware of is the tier pricing. Right, and uh, that's something that Ironman has introduced in the last couple yes. of years. Uh, do you know how deep into the tiers that they got um, during uh, the sign-up period? Do not. I probably could have looked, and um, I, I don't recall. But that's always kind of the one of the factors is, you know, depending on. It's nice to wait in case of injury or just lack of motivation, but then you're going to pay for it. Right. Procrastination always costs you. Right, exactly. And, of course, Ironman does have the deferment plans now, and there is the payment plan. So less of, uh, less of an excuse to put things off, but, but still, yeah, there is, there is that to consider. Uh, how about travel? Uh, Chattanooga, not a, a big city uh, by all means, but uh, I know when I flew there, flight choices were reasonable. You can fly into Chattanooga itself or you can fly into Atlanta or even, I believe, into Memphis and then rent a car from either of those places. How did you get yes, there? Yes, we flew into Atlanta and drove about two hours. Okay. And then, um, fortunately, we had a bike transport take our bikes, so it made it a little easier on the cost of a small car compared to an SUV. Right, right. So, and yeah. convenience. And I mean, there's, uh, Either way, you have to fly in. Uh, it's about the same either way. Right. Atlanta seemed to have cheaper rentals. And um, I flew directly into Chattanooga just because I don't like to fly and drive. Uh, The flights were, I think, a little bit more to do it that way. And you had a little less options because there aren't as many flights going in there. But it's a small airport, really easy to navigate. And uh, like you, uh, I use tri-bike transport as well because of the lack of needing to carry the bike on the plane and, you know, not needing to deal with it once you got there. Um, all right. Uh, how? Uh, where did you stay? So we did a VRBO. Okay. Yeah, enough, which worked out, but didn't work out at first. Like the first two places we booked got canceled, and we don't know if some people don't know, and then figure it out later that they can increase the prices. We had a perfect place right on the run course. Sure enough, you know, four months later, I think 
she claimed she was selling it, but um, yanked it. And then it got a little tougher to find places because now you're a little bit more behind the eight ball because other people have already taken a lot of the prime spots. But other than that, I'm, I mean, it's, I think, ideal because you can cook. So we're not big fans of staying at hotels because I kind of like to be able to control my meals a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember when I looked uh, for VRBO myself, I remember it was a little bit challenging. Um mostly because there didn't seem to be quite as many places available. I remember when you went for Worlds, you uh, when Worlds was in Chattanooga, you stayed a little bit out of town in a yes. bigger place, right? Yes. And, um, we were probably 15 minutes, which 15, 20, it wasn't ideal. Um, we still had a big house in Chattanooga, and we were probably five minutes or so drive to the... So, again, not ideal. Like, if you stayed at the hotel right down there, you didn't have to drive as much. Yeah. So we always had to kind of drive and find a place to park, which is, you know, not best-case scenario, but for the convenience of having our own place, yeah, I, I was going to take it. Yeah, and I have stayed in hotels. Uh, I've been to the race twice, so once for the Half Ironman and then once for the World Championships, and I stayed at different hotels. And uh, there's not a ton of hotels close to the site, so I ended up staying... You know, probably about anywhere from three quarters of a mile to a mile and a half away. And uh, that translates into a reasonable walk. And I know when I was there for Worlds, I forgot something in my room and had to go all the way back. And so that was kind of painful. But um, yeah, stupidity. <laughs> Paid the price for that. Uh, but um, yeah, I, it's not for lodging, it's, it's something if you are planning on going, that's the kind of thing you probably want to get on early so that you can get as close to transition as possible and not have to deal with you know, the long commute because there isn't as much uh, choice as in a lot of other cities. How, how far in advance of the Ironman did you get into town? We flew in Thursday morning. Okay. And and which is, I think, Wednesday night would be ideal. Uh, Thursday at the latest for us. Like okay. Because um, if, if you have any complications, you lose the whole day. Right. Which creates some stress. Yeah. Um, but, you know, with work and, I mean, if I did it for a living, I definitely would go on Wednesday, right? Yeah. And <laughs> had all the options. But um, fortunately, we took a fairly early flight and um, everything worked out. We were there by, and we had everything planned out, right? Like, as soon as we got into town. We knew exactly what we were going to do first and um, kind of knocked out everything and on the list. And it makes it a bit, you know, we um, didn't run into any time crunches. Right. Don't play by ear. Like, that's just not a good idea if you're, again, it just creates too much stress. And especially there was six of us. We can't have everyone wanting to do yeah. it their way, you know. So yeah. it makes it easier to maybe give some people some tasks. Some people want grocery shopping, this and that. And Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I know for the half Ironman, I think I got in similarly, or probably Thursday, possibly as late as Friday, but I'm pretty sure I got in on Thursday. Um, I, I, I wasn't terribly impressed with the area. I don't know that there's any reason to get there earlier. I don't know that there's anything really to do or see. Uh, did you guys do any sightseeing or visit anything that was worthwhile? No, not before. Um, after we went to some caves, but the, yeah. I just we both encountered trouble with travel. Uh-huh. And to lose the whole day and um, it really screws things up. I, as far as stress wise, yeah. I like to have two full days of just being able to get all my training in and things organized and checked in. And 
I mean, tr- trying to check in like on Saturday or Friday is a nightmare. Yeah. And when you think of like Chattanooga itself in terms of like as a family destination, I, I honestly, I mean, the aquarium was downtown. I didn't visit it, but it seems like a, an attraction. But was there anything else uh, really that uh, you had heard was worthwhile? We had, we did not. No, neither we had I. Kind of played it by ear and went to the caves and stuff after. Yeah. But before, yeah. Um, downtown's kind of cute. Yeah. You know, it's not a bad idea. Spent half a day walking around a little bit and seeing everything, but as far as attractions, yeah, I've been there several times now and never been in the aquarium. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Let's turn our attention to the uh, course now, and we'll begin, of course, first with the swim. Uh, at least the way the swim is designed. Uh, both of us uh, during our respective races had issues with the swim, but for the half Ironman, anyways, the swim is designed in such a way that it begins about a mile upriver across the river. So you have to give yourself lots of time uh, to be able to finish uh, your whatever you're doing in transition, get across uh, on one of the bridges, and then walk about a mile. Uh, once you get to the swim start, uh, you queue up. Uh, it is self-seated in terms of a rolling start. I found that uh, that here I did it. People did a pretty horrendous job of self-seating themselves. I'm not sure if you had a similar situation. You'll tell us in a second. Um, you then get in the water, swim about a tenth of a mile upstream before making a U-turn, and then downstream all the way to transition. Uh, it is a very fast swim because the current in the springtime tends to be fairly high because of the fact that uh, the water levels tend to be high. The uh, water levels in the fall, I understand, tend to be a little bit lower. However, it's uh, really, really significantly affected by rainfall. And the year that I did the half Ironman, there had been a lot of rain within a couple of days prior to the race. And as a result of that, they had to open a lot of the dams upriver. The water was running so fast, the pros couldn't get the tenth of a mile upriver. And so they actually changed the swim, shortened it to just being whatever the distance was to get downriver. And it all it took us all of, I think, 15 minutes to do the swim. Uh, what was the circumstances when you did the swim during the Ironman? So the year was flooding. And, um, the water wasn't the water, per se, um, speed as much as the flooding um, went into the sewage plant. Oh, okay. So it was and just so the, the quality of water. Yep. The E. coli was 100 times more than recommended. Gotcha. Well, that would have thinned the field. Yes. So <laughs> I think even though the water was crazy fast, they had a couple guys float it that morning at like 38 minutes. Wow. They weren't supposed to go in, but um, some people felt the need to think that they needed to do the whole thing. And uh, water quality was the problem. I see. Yeah. And um, the design of the swim course for the full, is it similar where you're supposed to swim upriver a little bit or is the whole thing downstream? When you turn to come out, there's a tiny bit. Yeah. But no, you basically, and I was there watching two years before, so I saw the whole thing. It gets a little stressful. So it's self-seating again, so people feel the need to send their loved ones out there at like one in the morning to hold a spot. Um, it literally lines up down the sidewalk for, I bet, a mile. It looks, wow. it's really freaky if you get there a little later in the day thinking um, it's going to take forever. Man, they push you into the water. Like, I think the one thing when you get there, not to panic, like, even if you're towards the back, you're going to get in the water plenty fast. I mean, people think they need to get up front if they're slower because it gives them a more time yeah. to cut off. Yeah. And so self-seating doesn't really work for because people think they need more time and that's not really how it works and you know it's amazing to me iron man has gone out of their way to make the swim more pleasant for everybody to thin out the bike course and they have done i think a fantastic job of explaining to people it's not the total time 
from start to finish. It's the amount of time that you personally are in the water. So this business of putting yourself up front when you are a slow swimmer, they're only hurting themselves. Well, they're not just hurting themselves. They're hurting the people who can swim faster than them because yes. the number of times that I swim into people who are have no business to being up there, it's really, really frustrating. And, yes. I, and I don't know what else Ironman can do to, to get this through to people because it, it still happens. And uh, at least when you've got a current, even the slow people are going to be moving pretty quickly. So. Yeah, because at Ironman Chattanooga, there's not corrals or anything. It's first come, first serve. Oh, really? They don't and, have signposts about, like, you know, no. what times are or there anything? There literally are people out there at 12, 1 o'clock holding spots for their athletes. That's, that's nuts. Not, it's not a joke. Oh, wow. That's, we got there that's special. to hold spots for our people, and we rode bikes out there. And we got there, I mean, really early, five-ish. Yeah. And we had to have been a half mile down. Holy smokes. And there's no, so here's the other thing, there's no bathrooms for the people that are down the line. So, again, it's... They hopefully have corrected it. This was two years ago, but it's you know there's things to think about. Maybe yeah, things yeah. When I did the half, there were porta potties there. Uh, Not a lot. Literally, is almost a mile long. Yeah, yeah. All the way down the sidewalk. So wow. Okay. (laughs) Don't panic. Like you'll get in the water plenty fast. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, can you hold it until then? (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's talk about transition. The uh, exit uh, from the water is actually really well marked and really uh, exciting, by the way. Uh, I remember sighting being piece of cake because the sun's behind you and uh, you can see the buoys beautifully no matter how many swimmers are in the water the sun just lights everything up ahead of you it's one of the best sighting swims i've ever had because of that Uh, and then uh, getting out of the water is a piece of cake because they have this uh, stairs i believe that come into the water and are really easy to navigate and they've got volunteers there transition for the half iron man was very very simple it was just a matter of getting out of the water to transition into the bike was piece of cake and then it was a matter of going in one uh, one end getting your bike and then going out the other end and onto the uh, the bike course fairly similar for the run yes yeah. yeah okay so let's talk about uh, the bike it is uh, a single loop for the bike uh, uh, for the half iron man I believe the iron man is two loops yep okay so uh, are they similar courses it's it's like a lollipop right right so you go out loop loop come back the way you came out Right. And do you know, I, I haven't looked at the map to compare them. Is it, it is. the so same you course? Went, you went up like you're going to look out. Yeah. And then you go left. Yeah. Yep. So same thing. And, yep. So similar courses down into, you actually cross into the state of Georgia. You do a, a really nice loop. I mean, not terribly challenging a couple of reasonable climbs maybe some rollers here and there but really scenic i i I thought it was a very pretty course the road conditions were terrific um i thought that uh, community support was really nice um coming through chickamauga is very nice uh and then you know the the one place actually that the road conditions were horrible was in chattanooga itself where you had to be really careful is that first sort of five or six miles coming out and then when you're going back in you have to cross some train tracks and there was some sharper curves where the roads weren't terribly great but really nothing to write home about aid stations for the half were very well placed i assume for the ironman they were as well yeah and again you climb out so you you know that the last 10 miles are all downhill so you go out um, the bike course is long, 116 miles, um, so it compensates for the faster swim. A lot of the rollers, you can carry the speed, so it's a lot different than Wisconsin or Louisville where you know the, there's really no steep pitches. There's two, they say, significant climbs, which are not 
they're really a piece. Oh yeah, no, they're, they're pretty really, mild. yeah, they're pretty mild. When it mild. comes to uh, talking yeah. about climbs, yeah. So the nice thing those rollers, they roll, they actually roll. Yeah. So you're carrying speed almost to the top of every one. Okay. It's really a pleasant bike course, like so yeah. Far, it was now really in the in May, it can be hot. Uh, May, uh, you know, the bike course can be hot in May. It can be humid, and that can make for some pretty unpleasantness. But because it's a shorter course, it's not as big of a problem. Um, I know that in September, the weather tends to be a little more temperate, although it can be hot then as well, can't it? Yeah, it was about ninety. Well, <laughs> I'd call that hot. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, and then again, it's the humidity that got you. Yeah. So you know, humidity is in the eighties percent, yeah, up to ninety. I think we were in the low eighties. So once the temperature got up, you know, if that's what you can really feel is that humidity. Right. Okay. And uh, back to the transition, it's the same transition because it is a loop course, as we mentioned. And then on to the run. Now, the run courses are divergent. Uh, they share some uh, aspects uh, that are similar. Uh, but uh, the Ironman course, in my mind, is significantly more difficult. It's got a lot more elevation. So we'll start first with the consideration of the half course, which is a two-loop course. Uh, it runs uh, basically adjacent to the river uh, along a highway for a little bit, and then it sort of dips down to the river proper and runs along a um, boardwalk before uh, doubling back, crossing over the river on, on one of the bridges, and then running across uh, uh, the river on the other side before coming back on one of the bridges and then starting all over again. Uh, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, not the easiest run course. Uh, even even the half does have a couple of really punchy little steep hills that really can knock the legs out from under you if you're not ready for them. But uh, once you get onto the bridge the second time coming home it's a really nice feeling and the, the finish is downhill so that that's pretty nice uh the iron man though is a different situation because you've got a significant hill to climb on each of those loops and is it uh, how many loops for the iron man two it's also two yeah okay so they just lengthen them by taking you out into that neighborhood on the back exactly. on the other side of the river exactly and uh, that hill is legitimate because when they did world championships the 70.3 World Championships, they modified the half Ironman course to include that hill. Yes. So I got to, got to savor that. That was not fun. Yeah, and there's another one in the back. So the whole time you're in the neighborhood, it's, there's like three big climbs then. Yeah, and it's all up and down. It's about okay. a four-mile stretch of hills. Right. Yeah. It, uh, and in 90-degree heat with 80% humidity, <laughs> that's not a lot of fun. It gets your attention. I, <laughs> yeah, I would definitely, if there's one thing I would suggest people... To train for that, I, uh, I it caught me a bit off guard. Uh huh. So just to, for comparison's sake, it's it's you're running out of transition along the river on uphill. The, when you leave transition, uphill. That's right, uphill, and then you uh, kind of hit that boardwalk, double back, cross over the river, and now instead of running bridge to bridge, you're actually running into these neighborhoods where you go up this very significant hill down into the neighborhood and then up another hill and then turn around and come back and yeah. do it all over again. Yeah. Yeah. So very significant. And, uh, um, I mean, I thought the course was nice. I mean, it's certainly not one of the most beautiful courses I've ever done, but it's, it's not ugly or anything. I guess support was great. And, uh, I thought that, uh, aid stations were well stocked and well placed. And I, I enjoyed my favorite part actually was on the other side of the river between the two bridges that seemed to be where the most raucous people were and where the most support seemed to be yeah yeah no it, i mean i wouldn't be afraid of the hills like like you said the run course is supported it's 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 a good run course it's it's just challenging right and if you're prepared for it 
I mean, you yeah. have to prepare for it. And you don't, you know, don't let people kind of talk you out of it based on, well, they're all hard. Yeah, exactly. It's an Ironman. It's an Ironman. All right. So uh, how about any, you know, take-home points? Uh, is this a race that you would recommend for people? Absolutely. Yeah. Chattanooga is a great place to race. Half full. I, I mean, I would go back to race in Chattanooga anytime. Just because the city really does a, a really good job of supporting it. Yeah. I, I agree for the half. Uh, I can't speak to the full, obviously, but for the half, uh, I, I had considered the full. But for me, that run does not suit my weakness, shall we say. Uh, but uh, the bike course is definitely suited to me. So I, I definitely would consider this race uh, one that is very favorable to do because the only thing is the weather. So it's, you know, you have to consider the fact that it's likely going to be hot. It's yes. likely going to be humid. And uh, if you're somebody who doesn't do well with that kind of thing, just keep that in mind. There are other options at the same time of year. But still, it is. It's a nice little place to do a race, and uh, it is a, it's a fun one. I enjoyed it as well. All the little Debbie snack cakes you can eat. That's right. <laughs> the, the title sponsor. That's right. That's what you like to eat after a race. That's right. Uh, Bill Ludington is a friend of mine. He's also uh, the head coach of Big Dog Try, and uh, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. He uh, finished third at IM2 last year and got his first ever slot to the World Championships in Kailua Kona, where he will be this October on the start line. Bill, thanks so much for joining me and talking about Ironman Chattanooga and the Chattanooga 70.3 races today on the Tri Dog Podcast. Uh, thanks. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. Don't forget to check out and subscribe to the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel for a video of last episode's Triathlon Retard and other triathlon-related content. If you have feedback or a question for consideration to be answered on the program, please email me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. Are you interested in coaching services and taking your own triathlon career to the next level? Well, please visit www.tridoccoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. The music heard at the beginning and end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com where I hope that you will visit and give small, independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another listener question for me to answer an interview with Lisa Bentley, multiple Ironman finisher, triathlon coach, and amazingly, doing it all while living with cystic fibrosis, and another episode of the Triathlete Routard. Until then, train hard, train healthy. Train hard, train healthy.